just an instrument. I really did it. I'm responsible. You don't punish people. The police don't arrest a stick. They arrest me because I'm the one who did it. So in the same way, let's say in a past life I injured someone unfairly or unnecessarily. The body that actually caused the injury was just an instrument of my will. The real cause of that unjust act is my mind, my intention, my will. And even though I leave the gross body behind and I take another body, but the subtle body, the mind, goes with me. And so therefore the mind which really was the author of that act is still with me. And if I search deeply within my own heart, my own mind, I can actually retrieve uh, the cause of my suffering. Because the mentality, the intention, the will, la voluntad, la volition, la voluntad, la voluntad, todavía existe. I mean, if we look deep within ourselves, we can find the inappropriate intention that led to an act which then produced this reaction. It's like training the mind, like discipline, with some discipline on the mind. Like, if I did something in my past life, and I now I recognize that I'm having some trauma, or I'm suffering, or I have some yes. mental problems, and then I recognize that I take responsibility that that has yes. my past life, and then I fix it, like, trying to well, that's the way to actually get past our suffering. Krishna is not malicious. He's not the jealous God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the reason Krishna puts us into difficulty is because he wants to teach us something. So the sooner I get it, the sooner I learn the lesson, the sooner we can move on to another class. And so if I don't take responsibility for my own troubles, if I try to blame someone else, I'm actually prolonging it. I am perpetuating Because it's like in school. If the student doesn't pass the test, the student has to stay, you know, take the class again. And so and so we have to we have to keep suffering until we finally get it. So if I blame someone else or don't accept I didn't learn the lesson. So I've got to keep repeating that class until I get it. So the quickest way to get past my suffering is just say, okay, whatever. Now I did something wrong. This is Krishna's mercy. Now let's move on. No, no, it depends. But, but I, I have a question. I have a question also. I have a question about donating the world. The point is, regarding all those things, sometimes they say, like, what's the Vedic position on this or that? Hmm? And the point is, there, there isn't one. But it's like a bias thing to do? No, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, the point is, in Vedic culture, people have different opinions. There are some absolute rules, like one should serve God and so on. But issues like cloning or organ donation is really an individual choice. And, for example,
example, when, when Arjuna and Krishna brought Ashwatthama back after he killed the father's son, Draupadi, Bhima said, kill him. Draupadi said, let him go. And so these are pure devotees who disagreed on a complex moral issue. So the idea that on every moral issue there's one absolute, one absolute fading position is actually not the case. In fact, Krishna says in the Mahabharata, Nahi Sarvam there's not a rule for everything. I mean, there are some rules that we should follow, but there are complex moral issues in which even great devotees disagree. There are, yeah. So it's not the case that. I think we sometimes misunderstand the complexity of Vedic culture. Like there's this idea that there's there's one Vedic style of architecture, which is the supreme architecture, and there's Vedic music and Vedic dance and Vedic cuisine. And I'm not sure that's true. In other words, if you look at. Hey, Jairi. Since you're a scholar, here's an interesting point. See how you react to this. I'm going to make a point now. I want to get your. See how you react to this. There are certain there are certain English terms that we have for which there's no direct Sanskrit equivalent, and yet they're we, we, we use them all the time, but they're not really literally Sanskrit. And one of them is Vedic culture. So what we find is, I mean, there, there is no Sanskrit term Vedic culture. Now, in, when we say culture, like you talk about, let's say, I don't know, North Brazilian culture, Mexican culture, or Bavarian culture, or Polynesian culture, or Appalachian culture, what we mean there by the word culture is a like set of, let's say, a certain way of cooking, certain traditional way of dressing, architecture, music, dance, marriage rites, and so on and so forth. And so when we hear the term Vedic culture, we tend to think that there's like a master ethnicity. In other words, like there's a supreme way to design buildings, to play music. Yeah, cultural model, but for all these specific things. And actually, I'm not sure that's true. Because what we actually find in the Bhagavad Gita, or the Bhagavad is principles, cultural principles, not necessarily cultural details. So that, for example, when Krishna describes food in the Bhagavad Gita, he doesn't say that offer me pakoras and samosas, or offer me chutney, which he couldn't have said that because chili, which is a chutney, didn't even exist in India at the time. He came from South America. So what Krishna says is, he gives objective principles which distinguish food as being sattvika, the mode of goodness, or the mode of passion, or ignorance. He's not giving cultural details like recipes. He's, he's giving principles, cultural principles. So, in the, in the scriptures, we find Vedic Dharma, like they're cultural principles, but not necessarily detailed ethnic stuff, <laughs> ethnic details. So, and certainly, even on moral positions, some things are universal. Like, for example, Krishna says that you should, whatever you do, do it for me. That's a universal principle. But cloning is not. Because, for example, like Vyasta, there's all kinds of artificial insemination. There's all kinds of artificial pregnancy in the Mahabharata. Drona, whose name means a vessel, I mean, Dr. Vessel, Dronacharya, he's a... Uh, <laughs> he's born a vessel 
and uh, Kripa and Kripi, not creepy, but Kripa, Kripa and Kripi were born in grass, and and even Duryodhana's brothers were born in a laboratory, because. Uh, What's it? Yeah. <laughs> you know the story where where uh, Gandhari was pregnant and it wouldn't come out. Like years passed, so she sort of beat her womb, and this lump came out. She said, "This is where his patient was. It's a lump." And then she was like really green, so Vyas took it and he sort of like a, in the lab and he poured some water on it and kind of divided it into a hundred pieces and then so under lab conditions all these people were born <laughs> there's all kinds of irregular extraordinary births in the Malvarta so if you say what's the position on cloning it um, <laughs> so just as there isn't like one Vedic architecture or one Vedic music I don't think on these details moral details there may not be one Vedic position people disagreed people had different positions there were conservatives there were liberals there were there was a whole range of views so Vedic culture <laughs> and use that term is actually it's, it's not it's not like a point or a line it's actually a space it, it's like a um, it's this area it's a cultural area within which there's all kinds of variety and the spiritual world is infinitely prostitution now there's a now there's a time honored institution <laughs> Um, Mars, thank you for, for coming. Well, thank you for coming. I, I remember where we saw it was at, at the campus. We lectured there. Oh. It was probably three years ago. Oh. Well, thank you. I'll see you again soon. I can see you right here. Prostitution. Harry, what's your position on prostitution? Prostitution. Excuse me, Vedasar, what? Okay. <laughs> you want to give me one of those garments? Okay, go ahead.
Um, prostitution has, for a lot of times, for some women, been like a stepping stone onto the other parts of your life. Like it's um, it's it's a business that you can open up shop. You don't have to have a lot of collateral the income to invest in merchandise or a building or anything. Use what you've got. No, but that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that's sort of a dispassionate, objective approach to it. Mm-hmm. And women have always been the lowest, like, as far as um, being, you know, salary. She don't wink. <laughs> <laughs> women still make 25 cents less per dollar than men do, actually. Um, it's changing rapidly now. Oh, that's, that's uh, funny. Probably. It's changing. But <laughs> so... The only thing, actually, is that yes. you said once, that right now there is no difference that you cannot you cannot differentiate this between someone that is a prostitute and someone that is a normal girl because I think they both are acting the same. Did I say that? No. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is on the price tag. Sure, wasn't something that looks like me? It's called treating. It's like women who work in You say they dress the same and they. No, no, I was making another point. I was just saying that, you know, that at a certain point, I mean, there was a certain way of dressing that when I was young was sort of like the official uniform of a prostitute. I mean, your hair a certain way, clothes, and then that became very fashionable, like to dress like that. But um, that's true, because I remember it really was that. But I mean, here, here's, one, here's one way to look at it. I mean, I'm sort of trying to follow Jai Hari's line of reasoning. I'm sort of looking at it in a very pra- sort of pragmatic, socio-historical way. And that is that uh, I've often heard, I, I mean, in this life I've never actually inhabited a female body, but I've heard it said, I've heard many women say that for many women, not all, but for many women, Hare Krishna, that, that, that for many women, security is an issue. That, because um, it is, I mean, it's a very violent nasty world out there and uh, and at least for many women as I've heard it told to me have you know having a certain amount of protection or security is an issue is something which is which is desirable and so and there are Mary's for example if you read Jane Austen are you called Gonzo's daughter oh yeah what's your name we're gonna do the piano thing right <laughs> yeah. I, I brought a book handle so, for example, in Jane Austen, there are like two kinds, two kinds of marriage, that are, and she's always talking about this because that's one of the main themes in Jane Austen. And one is a marriage of love; people just fall in love and marry. But another one is what they call the marriage of prudence, because in those days there was, I mean, a woman. There was no such thing as a woman going to college; they didn't have careers. There's a great line from Emma Thompson in her Academy Award-winning screenplay for *A Sense Sensibility*, where she put this line in where She's talking to Edward Ferris and says that he doesn't know what profession to choose and she says we can't even earn our living. So women, really, the, the, the only possible upward mobility for a woman was through marriage. Now, of course, as in the case of Jane Austen herself, her brother, one of some of her brothers became quite well-to-do and so they took care of her. But if a woman in ordinary circumstances, if a woman, her only, the only possibility of either having upward mobility or even maintaining her social class and not going down was uh, a prudent marriage. 
So let's say a woman cho chooses, as many women did and still do, a prudent marriage. Then, in a sense, it's exchanging, it, it's offering certain things like intimate association in return for certain benefits. <coughs> and so, I mean, I mean, there is something, and I don't want to exaggerate this point or take it too far, but there is something prudential about many relationships where I give something and I receive something. And so in the case of prostitution, of course, it's it's a little more crass in the sense that it's you know what you what you get is money, and what you give is something which is normally reserved for other circumstances. So, Jerry, was that a corollary what you said or? That was pretty shocking yeah. in my concept, you know, basically, you know. I didn't All the women there with husbands for convenience are nothing no, 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 prostitutes. No, 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 no. I didn't. No, that's not what I said. I, I mean, I mean, Hamato was. No, that's not what I meant. In fact, when I said all relationships, I wasn't referring just for women. Men do the same thing. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying just women or just men. I'm not saying it's only about sex or money. I'm just saying, but there is something prudential in the sense of something practical about relationships. And then Jai Hari was bringing up the special case. Because in the Bhagavatam, apparently there's no mention of prostitutes. And so apparently it was not illegal. And Prabhupada makes the point that sort of like a, an outlet to preserve a certain amount of social stability. Anyone else want to comment on this? We even had an example of one that is more exalted than most that got uh, touched by Supreme Lord. Uh, oh, Kubja. Courtesan, yeah, Kubja. So in that sense, it's almost like... Uh, One thing which is interesting, and I, I certainly don't want to be propagating immorality here, but Vedic culture is also not so squeamish about human body parts. In other words, if you look at... If you look at Victorian culture or just European culture, it, it sometimes... Like in, like in the Bhagavatam, for example there's more mention of the female anatomy than there is, say, in the works of Jane Austen or Dickens. I mean, you can read like 19th century English novelists and they actually don't mention the female anatomy as explicitly as in the Bhagavatam. And then if you look at, say, temp even sculpture, like the sculpture on temples or other buildings, there is a type of openness. I mean, one thing which I find kind of, I found sort of amazing is, for example, the worship of the reproductive organs of Shiva and and his consort Parvati, and so, which is a curve. I'm still, you know, I'm still on the curve. I can't say I've made the curve entirely. So there is there is a certain, and yet India, I mean, I mean, there's a certain openness about the human anatomy. Sunday, Easter Sunday, they showed in a science channel a documentary by some three women from the, the Divinity College in Harvard. Um, and they had a lot of, uh, you know, very academic things. But their point was specifically that Jesus' uh, preaching was entirely uh, geared towards enlightenment. And them, 
And furthermore, of course, they were emphasizing the fact that Mary Madeline was his most important disciple and how all the women were so important in early Christianity. And then they show how actually the man came over and completely changed the whole thing because enlightenment was too independent and they wanted the control of the masses. And they changed the whole philosophy, not losing Jesus per se, but they changed it for mass control. So maybe we could have a similar case in the Bible because the interpolations could actually bring a different view that actually the real... Well, the Bible often privileges women. I mean, the Da Vinci Code, the thing that was actually true about the Da Vinci Code was the removing of the female from the Jesus story. Yeah, I mean, the idea that Jesus, like they were hiding the coffin of Mary Magdalene because people might discover that it was actually, she was Mary Jesus, I thought was like, it was a very silly point for the reason that we don't have the DNA of Jesus. And therefore, even if you found Mary Magdalene, even if you found by some type of scientific investigation that she had born a child or been impregnated, we don't have the DNA for Jesus. There would be no way in the world to know if... There's a tomb in Cashmere that they say Jesus is buried. I know, but that doesn't have DNA. Well, his body would be there. No, believe me, no one has DNA for Jesus. Well, I mean, if they got permission to dig, I mean, of course they probably wouldn't. But how would you know it was Jesus? Because the records, that's what the people say. There are no... There's incisions from the... Yeah, there's incisions from the crucifixion because they have like a mold like Prabhupada's mold. But at the present time, we don't have it. So therefore, the Da Vinci Code thesis is not valid because we don't have it now. So if you say, well, if they found Mary Magdalene's coffin, then you can go to Kashmir and make a deal. I mean, we just don't have it. It's possible you could. However, yeah, we just don't have it now. Yeah, not now, but... And also, incisions, I mean, it's not that... I don't think Jesus was embalmed. And so, what would be the skeletal remains that you could actually test anyway? According to the Bible, like he, after he came out of the, the tomb, he just like you know flew away and went to heaven. No, but what I'm saying is, is, if that was 2,000 years ago, what would be the remains? Could you see an incision on the remains of bones? Because they said the tomb was generally faced like a, I think it was north, like for the Muslims, but the, I think it was, it was for the. There were no Muslims back then. Well, are you sure? Yes. Because <laughs> well, it's written in Arabic. Islam, <laughs> Islam didn't begin until many centuries after Jesus. Oh, okay. So let's. Anyway, I want to stick well, with the main I, point. I, know, I, I just remember hearing something about the tomb being different. It was compared to some culture, and then like the way they do in Israel, like the tomb is facing like east or something like that. But the way, so it was like it's the tomb is set up like one that was like a like a tomb yeah, in, in Israel. Okay, we'll have to go back to Gainesville. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, if you want. Yeah. You say it in the morning. Yeah, sure. Um, why, is, why is it so hard to surrender to spiritual life? Uh, why is it so hard? 
well, it's a very materialistic age. I think there are a lot of sincere people in the world, and um, one thing is life goes so quickly. It's like it's like a boat in the water. The faster it goes, the higher it is to ride, like hydroplanes. In the water, the, the boat goes slower, sort of sinks deeper into the water. So there's a sense in which everyone nowadays is intellectually hydroplaning because life goes so quickly <coughs> that it's almost physiologically impossible to think deeply. So there's very little deep thinking going on now. It's sort of like sound bites and slogans. And, and I mean, the political campaigns nowadays are wonderful evidence of that. So, like the, the, I mean, the country is kind of like intellectually hydroplaning. And, and it's, a very, it's not a very thoughtful civilization. So it's difficult in this age. It's, it's a difficult age. It's very materialistic. They call it the talismanic ideas. Talismanic Consumerism. Ideas. Yeah. So, but still it's possible. And it's, um, the nice thing about Krishna consciousness is like wherever you are, you can start there. And, and the important thing is not to like jump to this or that position, but just start to make improvement in your own life. So if we accept the principles of Krishna consciousness and we just start from there, and what do they say nowadays? Baby steps. So so if we just take, there is a by Let's just say, for example, I'm engaged in a very long journey, but I know where I'm going, and and, and I begin patiently, and, and eventually I'll get there. So I would focus on just trying to make gradual progress a little bit at a time and, and go in the right direction. <coughs> as, as far as which, which way the tomb is facing? that answer your question? <laughs> as far as which way the tomb is facing? It could be anyone. I mean, I mean, there was world trade back then. There were thousands of people that traveled from the Middle East to India and any one of them could be very good. There were also many, for example, there are many people like Jesus. There were actually lots of people during those times who started religious movements. It was, it was extremely... The Roman Empire around the time of Jesus was super New Age. It was like a very eclectic New Age extravaganza. And there were all kinds of people making claims and, you know, to be the Son of God and this and that. So it was a very... There were other figures at the same time who made very similar claims to Jesus and who were martyred and who traveled to India. So there was there was so much going on that simply because a tomb is facing a certain way, therefore this must be Jesus, is... We just don't know that. Well, there's some records, too, about in, the, in, the, the, in some monastery, in some Buddhist monastery, that say that he was there and he was... However, however... In Kashmir. What I found is that there there's... Okay, this is what we do know. What we do know historically is that certain people gained control of the Jesus movement and very much censored and filtered and molded it in their own way. I mean, you can see that in the New Testament. You can find significant theological differences, for example, between the story told by Paul, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Paul, who never met Jesus, and what Jesus himself says. There are significant theological differences such that for centuries, scholars have felt that to some extent, what people call Christianity is Pollyannity. So, and, and either the letters of Paul or the 
books written by associates of his account for you know, 50 to 60 percent of the New Testament. So the fact that there was filtering, censoring, and molding, and so on, we already know that. I mean, I mean that that's a fact. However, because we have a and there's and for centuries there's been the search for the historical Jesus. So because we know that in a sense we, we're not getting perfectly at the historical Jesus, there's been this quest, this anxiety to try to somehow or other find the real Jesus. And therefore, anytime something pops up which is rejected by mainstream churches, people kind of latch onto it. For example, like apocryphal gospels, or <clears throat> there are certain gospels, like the gospel of what is it? There's a gospel of um, not as Peter, Judas. What? Thomas. Thomas. And so this must be the real Jesus. But when you look at it, that gospel itself appears to have many problems. And, and, and so there's this tendency to sort of uncritically accept anything which is different from the mainstream church version and which somehow depicts Jesus in a way which we find more interesting. So, um, like the point that Jairi brought up. Was it Jairi? Was it David? I think it was... Um, I mean, there, there's no question about that. In, in Palestine, in, in that let's just say in the Roman Empire, because basically Christianity spread in the Roman Empire in the first few centuries because that's where people could travel and that's where people could be understood and that's where they had legal, whatever. So, in that area, I mean, for one thing, it was very much a male-dominated society and, um, and there were many concessions made to the culture of the time. I mean, one, one thing that has to be understood about the whole development of Christianity is that there was a dramatic demographic shift that took place very soon. That is, during the time of Jesus, and as long as his apostles were alive, at least you know, not the ones who actually lived with him, the Jesus movement was essentially constituted of Jewish people. The Jesus movement was known to the Romans and to everybody else in the world as a Jewish movement. In the book of Matthew, for example, Jesus is addressed as rabbi. So the Romans under Judaism, you also have to understand that Judaism at that time was very diverse. It was not at all like Judaism today, where you're either like you know, Orthodox or Reform, and even conservatives kind of like slipping through the cracks. There's kind of like you know, two or three ways you can be Jewish nowadays. It was completely different back then. It was extremely diverse. There were many, many different options. I mean, Israel itself was kind of like a new age country. There were all kinds of things going on. And so the Jesus movement was just seen as one of the Jewish movements. And that's how everybody understood it. There was no word Christianity. That came much later. So, but then what happened is for, and I'll tell you this very quickly because it's late, but uh, the, the followers of Jesus found it almost impossible to make converts in Israel. And that led to serious economic problems. Because you know, if you're a preacher and no one joins you, you basically can't pay your bills. And the reason is because the early Jesus movement took on the language of the Messiah and the word Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew, which in Greek is Christ, Christos. That word means the anointed one. The anointed one, the Messiah in Jewish culture, was the king, the king of Israel. That's why, so sort of sarcastically, when Jesus was crucified, they put the sign, King of the Jews. 
because to claim that Jesus was the Messiah was to explicitly claim that Jesus was the King of the Jews. That's the claim they made. That's why they said Jesus is the begotten Son of God because I think the second psalm in the Old Testament there is a psalm which was always recited at the coronation of the new king in Israel in which it's God says to the new king I now accept you as my own begotten son. So the language of begotten son the language of Messiah was all the, the language of Jewish kingship. And within the Jewish culture the paradigmatic like, like the quintessential king was David. David was a symbol of Jewish kingship and because he rose up against odds, terrible odds, and defeated, you know, Goliath. And then you had Judas Maccabee, for example, who defeated the Greeks. And so these figures who rose up and defended Israel militarily against difficult odds, they were the messiahs. That's what the word meant. Hmm. And so when Jesus was not only did not, of course he obviously did not organize any military resistance, the, the, the Roman occupation in Israel at that time was extremely unpopular because the, you know, the Israel they hated to be occupied and the Romans had different kinds of relationships with, in, within their empire different there were different political categories so their preferred category was to have a client king because it was like no trouble for the Romans like okay, like you know, you're Jewish you be the king of Israel and just pay us Taxes and tribute, and we don't. It's just not messy. It's clean. Just send the money to Rome, and that was the arrangement that Rome actually had with Israel. What happened? That was with Herod. What happened is that when Herod died, he had all these sons. They were kind of like spoiled brats, and they sort of divided up Israel, and they were fighting with each other, and they made such a mess that at a certain point, Rome stepped in and said, "This is too much of a mess," and so they actually recategorized. They reclassified Israel as not no longer a client <coughs> king but under direct Roman governance because Herod's sons were just making a big mess. And that's why Pontius Pilate was sent to Israel because Israel was reclassified by Rome as direct Roman government. Now, the Jewish people hated this. They hated the occupation and therefore there was a quest for a Messiah. Someone would be like David, like Judas Maccabee in the Hanukkah, Hanukkah story and free Israel from this Roman occupation. In fact, a generation after Jesus, they actually had a, a military revolt against the Romans, which was disastrous. So that was the quest for the Messiah. So in that mood, in that political and social mood in Israel, the fact that Jesus not only didn't act like David or Judas Maccabee, but was crushed by the Roman state, was publicly crucified, which was a very humiliating way to kill someone. The fact that in the Old Testament there were statements like one who dies, like, you know, nailed like that or hanging from a post or a tree is a sinful person. So they had all these problems. So when they tried to make their case in Israel that Jesus is the Messiah, people were just thinking, what are you talking about? Now, in fairness to the people of that country, it was the followers of Jesus that chose that particular language of Messiah, of begotten son, which just was completely out of sync with what everybody thought about those terms. So, in Israel, they're making no headway. It's become almost impossible to convert people. Plus, you know, the government was against it. Then, meanwhile, Paul took the Jesus movement to the Gentiles. And Paul's another trip, which I won't get into right now. But So Paul took the case of the Gentiles. And here's another point you have to understand. 
well, you don't have to, but you want to understand. And that is that back then, as now, there was a significant Jewish diaspora. There were Jews all around the Roman Empire. And there were synagogues all around the Roman Empire. And the Jews were very impressive to the other people because they had this book. They were very serious. There was something like really heavy and serious about their religion, which impressed a lot of people and their scholarship. So, around all the Jewish synagogues back then, there were these like friends of Lord Yahweh. There were these congregational people who would go to the synagogues and they liked Judaism. However, to formally convert... Oh yeah, one sale, just finish that. To formally convert to Judaism, the male leader of the family, who was a male-dominated society, had to be circumcised. And so, it's one thing when you're a little baby and you don't know what hit you. It's, a, it's another thing when you're like, you know, an adult male and you just have to have your reproductive... Anyway, it's so there were not many takers, and also to, to, to formally—it's true—to formally convert to Judaism, there were very strict dietary things. So there were so many rules and everything that there were large numbers of people that did not want to formally convert to Judaism. And if the, and if the male head of the family didn't, the rest of the family wouldn't either. And yet they would go to the synagogues. They were, you know, friends of Lord Yahweh. So Paul basically went to those people, and that's why if you read the letters of Paul, he keeps saying, look, you can be Jewish, you can buy into this ancient culture, and you don't have to go through all that stuff. Like, there's no dietary rules, you don't be circumcised. Jesus said, just you know, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul was making a lot of headway. And so it was these friends of Lord Yahweh that were hanging around the congregations, the synagogues, that began to convert. So, this is the significant point to understand the history of Christianity. Within a generation or so, after Jesus, the movement had dramatically changed. It was no longer a movement of Jewish people. It was a movement of former pagans. And these former pagans who converted, who accepted Jesus, basically imposed their own pagan culture on the Jesus movement. Not only things that everybody knows, like for example choosing Christmas Day because that was a winter pagan winter solstice festival and all that, but other things as well because the pagans were extremely comfortable with polytheism. It was like, you know, that was their bread and butter, polytheism. And so suddenly you have three gods or a three-in-one god so that as long as the Jesus movement, as long as it was just Jesus speaking and his apostles who actually knew him and lived with him, no one in their wildest dreams could imagine anything like the Nicene Creed or the Trinity Doctrine. But when the pagans take over the movement, suddenly we've got three figures here. God really is three people, not just one person. Another thing is that in the Roman Empire at that time, you could not be taken seriously as a contender, as a religious unless you had a man that became God. For example, Julius Caesar became a god after he died. And his uh, adopted son, August, you know, Augustus Caesar, became a god. And, you know, it would be on people's altars. So, and there were many other religions at the time where a man or a woman, you know, became divine. So, you couldn't really compete in the sort of religious marketplace of the Roman Empire unless you had a man who became a god. So, Jesus gets upgraded. Hmm. And. Jesus is not the Son of God. He actually is God. He's fully man, but fully God. You've got a trinity. You have the, the, and, the, and the Muslim, when the Muslims rejected Christianity, they said, well, they've given up monotheism. So the perception that Christianity had become marginally a polytheistic doctrine 
was, was a widespread perception. So this polytheism and the, and the Jesus is God and all this stuff. I don't know why I'm saying Anyway, so you, 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 I mean, you can go on and on and on and see what happened to the Jesus movement and how it, it went in a certain direction. However, uh, to say that therefore the book of Thomas is valid or therefore Jesus really was in Kashmir, it's just because the, the church made a mess, and they did. And one last thing. Then we'll go, okay? We have to go, right? Yeah. Is that the reason they had three people, like Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit? You know the reason for that. The reason they brought, the reason like the Holy Spirit was brought up from the minors up to the major leagues, you know, is because, now in the Bible, in the Old Testament, they talk about the Holy Spirit. But it, it was just like an aspect of God. The reason the Holy Spirit was elevated his position as a third person, who was also God, as a third person, is because by the time the book of John was written, around 70 years after Jesus in West Turkey, by the time the book of John was written, and the book of John was known even in ancient times, even at the time it came out, everyone knew this is not historically accurate. Because the ancient concept of historiography, writing history was, don't sweat the details, just get the basic points right. Get the philosophy right. So like the book of John begins, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word. I mean, does that sound like Palestinian thought? In the beginning was the Logos? And that's Greek. And, and in, in the New Testament, in the book of John, you have Jesus making puns on Greek words. Jesus didn't speak Greek. And so what you have is this Greek-speaking Jesus, and that's the only book that says, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the blood of God but by me. That's only the book of John. The book of John changes known historical details as found in the other Gospels just to make philosophical points. It actually changes the life of Jesus every, just to make theological points. And it's in the book of John also. By the time the book of John was written, which is the latest book, the church had manufactured so many new doctrines like original sin or like, for example, that uh, what, what, there was original sin or, or the Trinity doctrine. So many new doctrines were coming into vogue that people were asking, like, what's the authority for this? And the traditional authority was the Old Testament, the Father, the New Testament, the Son. Yet the church was manufacturing all these doctrines which weren't in the Old or New Testament. And so therefore, in order to justify these, all these new doctrines, they raised the Holy Spirit up as a third authority. As a third authority. And in the chapter 14 of the book of John, Jesus, the Greek-speaking Jesus, is quoted as saying that in the future, the Holy Spirit will come in my name and teach things you didn't hear from me. Now, devotees, of course, think that it's a prediction of this kind. But, <laughs> in historical context, maybe it is, but in historical context, it was because the church was creating all these new doctrines that were not in the Bible. And to justify them, they needed a third authority. And so, retroactively, they have the Greek-speaking Jesus say that Whatever the church is telling you, it's okay because it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the church all these new ideas which didn't come from the historical Jesus. So, you know, and the first time we have an official, the first time we have written down the New Testament, like there's several books in the New Testament. So the first time, because there were all kinds of books being written by Jesus, 
At a certain point, some church authorities said, "These are the books that will go into the these these are the books that will be going to the Bible." And so there were certain church fathers who made that decision, like what are the books that we keep and what books become unbonafide. Interestingly, the first time we find recorded the New Testament as we now have it comes in, in, in the writings of a person named Athanasius who was a bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century and who according to all contemporary historical accounts was a complete thug. He was just a mafia guy who burned down the churches of other people, you know, other Christians didn't agree with him. You know, he's not he was not above, you know, murder and and kidnapping and everything. He was just a complete criminal. But this is the guy that first records the list of books in the New Testament. So we could go on and on and on about Christian history, but it doesn't mean that Jesus was in Kashmir, that's the point. So anyway, better <laughs>